welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Before we get started, I just want to let you know this is actually part two of a two-part series between Drs. Chris Green and Tom Ord about God's knowledge, about how we relate to God, and what God can or cannot do. So if you haven't listened to the first part, I would encourage you to go back to the last podcast, listen to the first part before diving in to part two here. Well, you know, I, I was going to honestly just being a fly on the wall in this conversation and just getting to hear you too. is just like, it makes my heart happy. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks for building the wall. Just, thanks just for building hear... the wall, man. <laughs> hey, I'll, I, I like, well, I was going to say, I like to build walls. I'm like, no, I don't like yeah, to do yeah, that actually. <laughs> no, <is> no, <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, I, I think maybe, especially in kind of light of the idea of everyday theology, you know, we had this kind of example of Michael, but in some sense, what can be, if I can just ask this question, break in and ask here, what can be the way in which in both kind of systems, because there seems to be kind of a lot of like agreement that happens uh, in kind of talking it out, even though there are still kind of major differences. Well, you know, can I, Aaron, can I say that? Can but I name ha- this? I think this is it, Tom. See if yeah. you agree with this. I think that Tom and I are 100% agreed about God's character. Where we disagree is about God's nature. Interesting. I think we have the exact same view of character. What's uh, that? I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, it would depend on the distinction there. Um, what would you say the difference is between God's character and nature? So I think, again, this can be semantics, and I, we need to be careful here because the words can get used synonymously. And But what I think what I'm yeah. trying to name is I think you and I fully are agreement, in full agreement about God is nothing but good. God is not at odds with himself right. in terms of what he wants for us or what he's doing with us. Right. He's not playing one game with his left hand and, one, and another one with his right hand. He's, he's yep. of one heart for us, and that heart is absolute love all the way down. Yes. But I think where we differ. So I think that's, that's what I mean by character is his, his disposition toward us, his affection for us, his desire for us. I think, I don't think there's even a whisper of disagreement about that. I think where we disagree is what that means in relation to, to infinity, eternity, power, the, the classic attributes of God, God's nature in that sense. So for me, it's, you know, infinity is basic. It's it's and there and therefore is altogether other than causal because the infinite right isn't by definition isn't causal. So at least the way I'm working with the concept of the infinite. So and so on down the line. Is that is that cleared up? You know, you see what I'm saying now? Yeah, I think that is a major difference. I I don't like the word infinite at all. <laughs> so tell, tell me why. Tell me why because I I can't. I mean, that's what I love most about it's the, God. So help me understand what, what you don't like about it. Yeah, Obviously, infinite can mean lots yeah, of yeah, different things. Right, but yeah. if, if we just look at the word not finite, 
it's not telling us anything constructive about God. It's an apophatic oh, mode. See that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if infinite means everlasting, oh, I believe God is everlasting. I'm totally on board with that. Of course, I think God is everlasting sequentially, and you think God is, you know, eternal, you know, whatever, outside of time. So those words are going to have a little different meaning. If infinite means uh, something like that, uh, something like uh, never gives up or is immense in all space, uh, you know, I'm totally there. But that word infinite gets used in so yeah, many yeah, different ways. And if we just look at the way it, the word says, not finite, it's not telling us anything constructive. And so I try to shy, shy so away. So I, I think it's telling us the most constructive thing, which is that God is the one in whom the finite finds its home. So for me, the word infinite, that's what I said. I, it's what I love most about God. It's what I, to me, it's what makes God worshipful is that his love is infinite. And there, so one way this plays out for me is that he's therefore infinitely creative. You notice I said that earlier when I was saying God doesn't need anything to do what he wills because he's infinitely creative. So, I, here, if I were going to preach this, and I have, <laughs> for good or bad, uh, <laughs> the and well, yeah, I'll just leave that alone. But if I were going to preach this, as I did Sunday, um, I talked about the Thomas story briefly, and how I'm struck by the fact that in the story of Thomas, Jesus says, "Look at my hands and my side. Reach your hand forth and touch my hands and my side." He doesn't say my wounds, and he doesn't say my scars, although obviously he's referencing his woundedness. Right? He's referencing yeah. the fact that he has he's undergone torture. And there's something that Tom that Thomas can touch. Although, of course, in the text it never says if Thomas does or not. Right. But what I what I'm arguing for is an eschatological event in which hands and sides bear witness to what has happened beyond scarring and wounding. That what we're praying for is not just that the wounds will heal and therefore scar, but for a kind of healing that without making the past not to have been, makes it so that it is not what it was. And I can't say that without infinity. Like, I, I literally is not possible. I mean, well, I shouldn't say it's not possible. I can't imagine a way to say that that kind of eschatological restoration would be brought about without infinity. Because one of the things I have to say, and I, and I often do, is that the appearance of Jesus is something that happens to time, not in time. So the, the, the coming we're awaiting is not a, it's not a temporal event. It's not any more in my future than it's in my past. I'm no closer to it than Abraham was. I'm no further from it than Abraham was. And not because God is outside of time, but because God is infinitely enfolding time. And hmm. I don't think of time as a hindrance for God one way or another. I don't think God is timeless. I think God is time full and he's time full precisely because of infinity. So, I mean, obviously now at this point I'm just preaching, but the, that's why I love that so much. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that, even though we, we adore the same character in God, it's like we've somehow, that's worked into an entirely different sense of nature. 
which I, and I don't know what to do with that exactly, but I'm fascinated by it. Let, let me ask, uh, I want to ask this kind of question to bring it to a, a practical place. None of this is practical. I think a practical All of this place. this is practical, Aaron. <laughs> yes, it is. But let me ask a question that makes it easier for me to understand the practicality. Uh, like, let's let's use some test cases. And I think one test case that's often used, especially as it relates to open theism versus other models of God is in both of your systems, then what would be the purpose if a friend is sick? And I want to sit down and I want to intercede and pray for my friend's sickness, for God's healing, uh, even more so probably just the curing of a friend. In both of your systems, maybe, what would be the relationship that I would have in that moment to God or that God would have to my friend in which what God is doing, what can do, can't do, should I pray, should I not pray? You know, what good is it going to do in some sense in my relationship with God and my friend? And I'll start with whoever wants to start with that question. You should go first. You you go first. All right. Um, I'm going to begin with a plug. How's that? I have a book coming out in July called Questions and Answers for God Can't. And there's a whole chapter on why you should pray and uh, why prayer, I'm assuming that you mean something like petitionary prayer, not just, yeah. you know, confessional prayer or whatever prayer is a commitment. So I really do think that our petitionary prayers can actually make a difference to God and the world. That's one of the advantages I think open theism has. I think that uh, we should pray that God isn't sort of sitting back, arms folded, not doing anything until we pray enough times. God's already active, working in the situation that you've made up here with the sick friend. God wants to heal. The sickness isn't a part of some mysterious plan that God has for, you know, making the world a better place or teaching your friend a lesson or whatever. God also is not punishing your friend with this sickness. Um, So what I think happens is that because God needs creation in order to uh, do all the good God wants to see done in the world, that our prayers can actually make a difference in what God chooses and and how God acts moment by moment. It's not that our prayers somehow turbocharged God to instantaneously control our sick friend and heal that person, you know, all in as a sufficient cause, all alone. Um, But our prayers could be additional information, data, additional uh, relational information. Well, I'll just use the word date again because I can't think of a good word. But uh, anyway, they can uh, provide additional means by which God's healing activity might be more effective than had we not pray. So there's no guarantees, but um, our actions can make a real difference. Hmm. I, I think I would want to ask a clarifying question on what does it mean to say that God's what God could do is be more effective or less effective based on prayer. Yeah. Um, if we yeah, want to I'm, hit that real quick before I get to get to Chris. Yeah, I'm making a couple assumptions. One assumption is that we live in an interrelated world such that our actions have an effect on others and prayer is an action. 
I'm making another assumption that God's a relational being, that we have an effect upon God such that our actions affect God and prayers and action. So both those assumptions go into play here that some that say that our actions make a difference to God in the world and therefore Moment by moment, God takes into God's self everything that happens and responds in the next moment based upon what happened in the previous ones. Great. That that helped, that helped me uh, clarify, I think. I wanted to make sure that was clarified before we jump to Chris. So I think that – I mean I'm, I, I had a hunch this is where our difference was, but it, it's it's really fascinating to me the more I think about it that – that we could share so many, so many of the same concerns and so many of the persuasions about what God is like in terms of his love for us, and yet see all of this so differently because of the metaphysics, the, the, the sense of nature that's at work. And I, I think, you know, I'm not sure what to do with that. I'm not, I'm not sure all of the implications of it. But let me, to speak to your question directly, I agree with Tom. I think prayer matters. I think prayer shapes the way things happen in the world. But but I have other things I want to rush to say. One is, as a Pentecostal, I think it's very important that in our churches we say, our prayers do not move God to be better than he would have been otherwise. That That we never want to suggest that God is capable of good he doesn't do because we didn't ask for it. And, and you know, there's a there's that saying attributed to Wesley that God does nothing in the world except in response to believing prayer. And, and I think that I mean I love Wesley. I'll kiss him on the mouth. But but that's just that's just <laughs> mindlessly stupid. Like that, I mean, first of all, creation itself could never happen. The resurrection of Jesus could never happen. Yeah. The forgiveness of our sins could never happen. I mean, that's just I mean that's just mindless. If if you if you stri- take it out of its context, it makes more sense in context. But out of its context, as a standalone statement, I mean, I think it's just utterly, utterly wrong. Because I think the whole point is, even my prayer is already the movement of God's life in me. That when I pray, I'm not making God be good. I'm not making God be better than he would have been otherwise. It's the goodness of God awakening me toward his own goodness, making me share in his goodness, right? It's his life in me that's it's, it's, hmm. that's making my prayer possible, right? Um, yeah, yeah, but. but let me ask you this question, Chris. If Is it the case in your view that your prayer has any effect upon God? I mean, like a, a classic Thomas is going to say God is impassable, so God's not affected by our prayers. But if you didn't go that direction, you could say, you know, like some Christians say that, uh, you know, my, my prayers, God could have fixed it all alone had I not prayed. Do you want to go either of those directions, that God's not affected by prayer, or that God could have just up and fixed it even if we hadn't prayed all alone without any divine or any creaturely contribution? Um. <laughs> not to be not to be troubled, okay. <laughs> but but I, I don't want to say either of those things. I mean, that's that's for me. The, everything that's at stake is those aren't the choices. If those are the choices, then of course I'm going to choose the first one. Good, because if you if those are the two choices, then the second one means evil is something God is using, God is allowing, and and I, I'm not going to say that. I mean, I won't I won't say that. So yeah. I've got to have another way. To, to talk, and I think the third way, or a third way, not necessarily the third way, is to say, 
that the way God works is always the best possible thing for everyone at the same time. All creatures are under the influence of this goodness of God. And we, we just, it hasn't been realized yet in our experience, but that's precisely what we're, we're hoping for. So because I'm thinking of God's relation to time as timeful rather than timeless or sequential. So I don't think God has a past, for instance. I don't think God remembers anything. I don't think God is living along the timeline with us. I think the timeline exists in the happening of God. And God is in his loving, non-coercive way. And by the way, this is another place where I'm absolutely with you. I don't think God is capable of violence by nature or character. I don't think God is capable of doing that. But I don't see that. So this is where I'm different from Thomas. So there's a passage in Thomas where he's talking about Abraham offering Isaac. Now you're talking about Thomas Aquinas, not Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. right. Your namesake. <laughs> so Thomas says, yeah, I'm glad you clarified that. I didn't even think about it. Um, so, so Thomas in his write-up about the Akedah, about Abraham offering Isaac. He says, this may seem to us to be wrong. It's in, it's in his section on natural law. He says, this may seem to us to be a violation of natural law, but that's not true because everything is right because God calls it so, and everything is wrong because God calls it so. Right? God's word constitutes rightness and wrongness. And then he says, which actually I think is right, but then he goes on to say, therefore, if God tells you to do something Otherwise, evil, it isn't evil because God has called you to do it. Therefore, it is in itself good. And he talks, he talks fascinatingly, he talks about the looting of Egypt and the married, marrying a prostitute, Aunt Hosea, and then Abraham sacrificing his son or being willing to sacrifice his son. And he said, in all of these cases, these men were right, these two men in the nation were right to obey God in spite of the fact that these things otherwise would appear to be evil, looting, adultery, and killing the innocent. And I think that the first part of what he's saying is right, and the last part is just a complete disaster, right? Yeah. I mean, because it's, it's showing, I mean, I think that's ultimately worse than playing mystery. That's to say that God is just schizophrenic. Arbitrary. God might do anything, right? Arbitrary, yeah, arbitrary. all the way down, all the way down to... To meaninglessness. And so what I want to say instead is God in our prayers is always answering our prayer. But because we are temporal, we experience the answer to that prayer differently. And I don't and this is why I don't think and this is one of the things that Ken likes least about my approach. This is the thing I was that I say, think I don't like it either. <laughs> and I, and I, because he thinks it takes away from the integrity of present tense human experience. Yeah, yeah. Because what and I'm prayer. suggesting. Well, no, no, I don't think it takes away from prayer, although maybe it still does. But I, I don't making think so. sense of I, prayer is what I meant to say. Yeah. Oh, I see, I see. So I because for me, if I'm if I'm praying. It's shaping what's happening in the world, but it's not making God better. It's just playing out how that goodness shapes me in this particular moment. Yeah, but so I'm, I'm in agreement with you that it doesn't make God better. 
But what I'm saying is that your prayers provide new data. This is the word I keep coming back to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, uh, right, right. So, but it down, sounds to me like you don't think it provides God new data. No, no, Earlier, sure. yeah, I'm not saying that. Yeah. I, 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 but I am saying that it does. So I, let me give you maybe this example. So when I was, I've used this before. I think Aaron's heard me talk about this. Um, a few years ago, my wife was gone for about a week and then was coming back. And I was going to have this romantic dinner for her when she, when she got home. And my daughter, who was our only child at the time, was about four, maybe five. And she came in the kitchen and she said, Dad, what are you doing? I was like, well, I'm making dinner for mom. She's like, I want to make dinner for mom. I was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> like, because, because I had a particular kind of dinner that I wanted to make, right? I mean, yeah, you can imagine. And now Zoe wants to do it. And so I, I on the fly, like said, yeah, let's do this. So when, when Julie got home that night, Zoe had made dinner for her, right? And, and so everything was different, but my intention was still fulfilled, right? Like dinner was still made. And something like that's not a perfect analogy, obviously, but that something like that is what I want to say. Our prayers can shape the way the goodness of God takes place in our lives, but not because God is adjusting to it, but because we are adjusting to God. We are coming into alignment with him. Yeah. And that as we do, our humanity expresses that divine pressure differently. But the same divine pressure is there e either way. It's just. Yeah, I, yeah go ahead. I, I find I find it unsatisfying. Um, whenever I hear a Thomas give that kind of illustration, it's always something good that came out at the end. <laughs> so in other words, let's say uh, you want to make the dinner for your wife and your daughter says, no, I want to. And she has in mind poisoning your wife. Yeah. And suppose that the dinner actually poisons and kills your wife. Yeah. Now, are you going to say, well, you know, we did it together. It was us. No, yeah. no, 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 you're because not because your attention was different than hers. So sure. um, I think but that's when where the, the analogy breaks down, right? Because right. Yeah. we're two human beings who act in the same way. God isn't. So God's intentions are never, never fail. I mean, another way to get at this is C.S. Lewis's um, uh, problem of pain. So in the chapter on hell and problem of pain, Lewis talks about how in the end, God loses. God does not get what he wants because human beings can thwart God. Like God doesn't get what he wants. And I, I tell me about that. Do you think that's, is that how this is all going to end? That God is not going to get what he wants? He wants, assuming he wants to save everyone, right? Yeah. Um, in my view, it's a potential po a possible end. So it could be that love doesn't win. It's that's possible in my view, because God can't control and God uh, always works with creation. Now, I think God is always going to call creatures. And since it's an everlasting process, I think there's a good chance that God's going to convince all creation, the redemption of creation. Out all, the end. Yeah. yeah, in some ways, yeah. But uh, that's not the kind of guarantee that can only come with some kind of, uh, you know, coercive power. So I have to be honest and say, yep, it is possible that love doesn't win in the end. Yeah. And I think that's it right there for me that I, I can't I don't think I, I think David Bentley Hart 
um, who doesn't do himself any favors, but I think he's right about this, that if God created with that outcome as a possibility for even one person, it was evil to hmm. create. Yeah, I well, I could talk a lot about David Mentley Harp. I think I'm going to well, not go there and let not, Aaron yeah, jump I, back I don't, in. <laughs> I don't, I don't, this is not a defense of him. I mean, like I said, he doesn't yeah, do I himself know. any favors. I meant, I meant his position in that. I mean, I think – well, I'll just say it quickly. Uh, I think David Bentley Hart ends up being what philosophers call a compatibilist. That is, that in some ways we're free, we think we are, but ultimately God has set things up to be in control by the, at least by the end. And um, I'm not a compatibilist. But I think, I think the reason way. you're reading it that way is because you're reading it as a sequence, as a sequence. And I'm I don't. Very, I think that, that's yeah. It's probably a lot to it. Yeah, it's probably true. I think if you don't assume sequentiality to the action of God, so for instance, when I say what I'm saying right now, I mean, I think God is just as present to Abraham as He is to me, and Abraham is just as present to God as I am. I I think that Abraham and I are cut off from each other by time, but no one is cut off from God by time. And you would probably and, also say that your great great grandchildren are, if they exist at some time, are going to be equally present to God as you as Abraham, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the whole not that they they don't exist, obviously, right now. But so one way of coming at this is what we think Jesus' resurrection is. So I I think the reason you're disagreeing with Hart on that. And is the same reason you're disagreeing with me is that we're because of David and I are both working with concepts of infinity and divine action. I, I don't think it is compatibilism. I think it's what the, the Maximus and I don't think it's Thomas. I think Thomas is actually referencing pseudo Dionysius here. I think it's Maximus confessor, really. And Thomas works this out in his own way and not always well, in my opinion. But when he talks about God as beyond being, Thomas is just referencing Dionysius. And that is the tradition that I'm talking about, but primarily in Gregory of Nyssa and Maximus Confessor. So for me, the again, the eschaton is something that happens to time. The past is not closed to God. And he will act on. And that's what I think the resurrection is. That when Jesus is resurrected, it's not another event on the timeline in Jesus' life. It is the taking of the whole timeline of Jesus' life up into the life of God. So Jesus' life begins and ends like every life begins and ends. He's born and yeah, he I dies. Think, yeah, I think fundamentally people who are listening to this podcast are going to have to ask themselves, what seems more intuitively correct? A God whose time is utterly different from ours, which I think is something like your view, or maybe you wouldn't say utterly different, but um, the the phraseology you're using sounds like God's relation to time is utterly different because it's not sequential. Or does it make more sense to think that God experiences time sequentially, moment by moment? Um, and that's my view. Um, how would you? How do you deal with? I'm sorry. I well, I was going to say, let me let me kind of jump in here for a second because I want to maybe ask this question that because can, can I, Aaron, will you let me ask him about prophecy? Sure. 
How does that factor? Yeah, I assume you? you mean by, by prophecy, predictive prophecy. So the of idea yeah, that, yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. most most prophecy in the Bible is not predictive. It's you know the prophet standing up saying the people are doing wrong, you know, and they need to change. But if we're talking well, about I'm, predictive prophecy, we're talking about what what do we do with statements in Scripture in which God says you know something's going to happen in our future. Yeah. Um, a lot of those statements are claims about what God plans to do in the future. And so God doesn't have to be outside of time to make plans about what God wants to do in the future. But there are some passages in Scripture, I think probably a classic one for me is the Jesus saying to Peter, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. That sounds kind of like maybe God, uh, Jesus, at least, somehow knows the future as if the future is present to him in a way that I don't think is possible. So, um, yeah, on that kind of thing in Scripture, my view doesn't work very well. And I just like to be honest about it and yeah, say, yeah, you know what? I appreciate that. That's, yeah, I think yeah. that's great. What about – think... about... go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I'm, I'm just eager because I'm learning a lot. This is helping me. The, the... So like prophecy, how does – guess, I guess what I'm stuck on is I don't see how in your view – God could ever make a promise we know he could keep. It would seem like every condition God, every promise God gives would always have to be conditional. Well, unless the, promise, say, yeah. unless the promise is based on God's nature. So I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, if God by nature can't leave us or forsake us, then yeah, I will always love you. Well, God by nature always loves us. So there's all kinds of things God can promise based upon God's everlasting nature that I don't even think God can change. And I'm, th I'm guessing you don't think that God can change either. No, 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 so, no, no. Um, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So but I'm saying things like, if, you know, God saying, you know, Paul's saying, you know, what God has begun in us, the good work he's begun in us, he will seek in a, to completion. Like, that's not a statement about God's faithfulness. That's about a statement about God's accomplishment of our faithfulness. Yeah. Well, I mean, here the question is what it means to complete it, right? I mean, that's that's the ultimate thing. Ah, I, I would yep. interpret that as saying that God has a particular end in mind and God never gives up at uh, bringing us to that end. Now, if you interpret it as, well, the end has already been decided and God knows because God's outside of time or timeless or however you want to talk about your view of God's relation to time, then obviously it would uh, conflict in some ways. What, what about space? If God is in time— and time is spatial. Is God in space? God is present to all things that exist. Yes. But as but as a thing or like as a being. Um, yep, an omnipresent being. So I'm willing to swallow that card of God being a being that you don't want to swallow. Uh, because I think it allows me to talk about God's causal action in ways that are analogous to creaturely causal action. Now, obviously, God being an omnipresent being is going to have some differences with our being, but um, the the similarities are also very important to me. So what's so, the go ahead, go ahead, Aaron? You've been, yeah, you, I would, you need to get the way in. <laughs> no, again, loving just listening because I'm learning a lot, and I think I think it can be really really helpful to kind of explore God in a lot of these ways. But I do think we need to kind of maybe do a summation here to help listeners maybe kind of, again, grasp something to take 
away with in their perception and their perspectives of God. And I would I would ask this question of both of you as kind of maybe even more of an ending point. And, you know, if we need to have more of these, I'm all for it. You know, we can just keep doing this. Maybe we'll start a whole new podcast about can God <laughs> just, or cannot just God. Just for Tom and, Ar- Tom and Chris arguing about what God can do. <laughs> but, but if I have to ask, like this one thing, how would any person, just an, an everyday person, you know, me, from both of your perspectives, if you can give like a just one to two minute response on this is how we should view who God is for us in our lives today, how might you kind of, I know it's way too big of a task, but to summate God in that kind of way within your view. And we'll start with Tom. You know, I've, I've started first every time. I feel okay, kind of bad. Okay, we'll start with Chris. Chris. No, no, Chris, it's yours, man. I give it to you. You're just the first on the list on my computer right now. Uh, okay. I feel bad. I've always got the first shot at things. Go for it, Chris. Yeah, so for me, it's you know, everything comes down to the God whose character is nothing but love and whose nature is the infinite realization of that. So, hmm. uh, of love. So that means, for me, what's most important to know about God is that God is the one who can, who can do all things and who does all things well and who needs nothing to bring about what is good for us, who never needs us and precisely, therefore, in cooperating with us, uh, does us good and, hmm. and brings us into our fullness. So one thing we didn't get to tonight that I think is decisive is, and I, and I'm pretty sure I know where this different, where our differences is here, but this is why for me, my faith is itself already a gift of God. I don't believe on my own. I'm not, I'm not a self grounded entity. I'm grounded in God. So if I believe, I believe because his life has taken shape in me and enabled me to believe. And and therefore, I don't think salvation is a cooperation between God and me. Salvation is the working out in my life of God in me. So I don't think people are saved because they did some of the work. I don't think it's like God did what he could do, and now we have to do the rest. I think it's God does what only God can do until we are fully humanized, until we're brought to, to the fullness of creatureliness. And that that's what we're, we're yeah. hoping for. Tom. Well, since Chris got to start, uh, I think I'll make my summation, um, try to use language that draws out some of the tension between his view and mine, even though we've said all night, we have a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me start with what we have in common. We both want to emphasize God's nature as love, that God's in the business of love, loving and not endorsing evil, not wanting evil, not allowing it, etc. I don't think God can do all things. What Chris just said, God can do all things. Nope. My book is God, titled God Can't. <laughs> so there's some things God can't do. And one of them is God can't control or act in ways that prevent evil single-handedly. God always requires our cooperation. Also, I think God really does need us. God can't overcome evil single-handedly, unilaterally, all alone. God needs our cooperation. 
And one more contrast, I would say salvation does require our cooperation. Again, God can't save us single-handedly, unilaterally. Now, I know Chris would probably want to qualify all of what he said, (laughs) given his view of God's relation to time. uh, And that's going to be, again, one of the differences between us. But we're both in agreement that God's a God of love. He's not in the business of causing or allowing evil. How we shape these things out differs. I think those those differences matter, maybe not to every person who's listening to this podcast, but uh, they matter in terms of how we want to work out a, a system or a way of thinking that we think is rationally coherent, consistent, fits how we understand scripture, all those kinds of things. Um, but we share some important things in common, but also I wanted to point out some differences. I think, I mean, I think it's, yeah, I think it is really helpful. And I think at the end of the day, what a lot of listeners can take away from this is this reality of God's love being so grand that putting words to how God's love works within his created world is hard to express or maybe causes some differences in the way that we talk about it because it is so much more than I think we can just possibly put words to, even though we must try. Um, and that relates with how God relates to us. And so I think in in both uh, Tom and Chris, both of your, your kind of ways of talking about it are going to be a lot for people to chew on for quite some time to constantly kind of maybe go back to, well, if this is God, then maybe, then maybe this is how God works out. And I think more than anything that provides space for a lot of people who might have kind of grown up with singular views of God or very yeah. monolithic yeah, views of God that just never allowed them for to say God might be bigger than those views that they've always had or always have been given. So I, yeah, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I think some of the differences here are aesthetic in that. So earlier, I think Tom made mention of how, he would encourage people to think about what's more intuitive. Well, for me, the lack of intuitiveness is a mark of authenticity, not, not a mark against it. <laughs> right? it just, aesthetically, I mean, artistically, to me, the, the whole point, like when I read scripture, I see a scripture that, that makes little sense, right? Stories that make little sense. And that there's that one of the marks of God's presence in our life is the mysterious, not in the sense of, the thing we can't talk about, but as the overflowing of goodness. So I, I think one thing to consider for those who've listened this far is that some of what makes a theologian differ from another is an aesthetic sensibility, a sense of what do you find? Like, so like some of it is just um, taste, right? So not that they're not things at stake, but, um, I do do think that's worth noting there that that I think some people in evangelical circles are troubled when theologians disagree like this. But I I think of it more like the difference between a jazz musician and a classical musician. That you don't need to choose between them, right? They're 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 performing different things. So what makes this interesting? What makes our conversation really interesting is we have different fundamental intuitions or aesthetics on some things 
but similar ones on other things. Like there's lots of theologians I know whose fundamental intuitions are not that God is a God of love all the time and uncontrolling to use my language and non-coercive to use some of the stuff. I mean, that is a really significant intuition you and I share, even though we have some other fundamental metaphysical assumptions or intuitions or aesthetics that we don't share. Well, so one I would most want to share, if I could just ask everybody, or if I could determine for everybody what they should believe about God, I would want them to trust his goodness. Because I think he's going to reveal everything. I mean, I think at the end, in heaven, we're all going to know I was right about the nature stuff. But what we'll, <laughs> but what we'll be rejoicing about is that we were all right about the character stuff, right? That, that God was indeed just as good as we thought he was. Yeah. Amen. Uh I think at some point I'm just going to have to do some kind of big conference between the two of you and just make it an all day event and then just, <laughs> yeah, <that> sounds fun. <laughs> and then just let you go. Yeah, uh, but we, but we do need to end here before we go. Um, I'd love to hear about any projects that you, you both have coming up. Tom, I know uh, you're starting something new and exciting. So if you want to share and Chris, if you've got anything that you want to share and uh, we'll, We'll talk to the people next time. Sure. I, I'd like to share. Well, there's lots of things I could share, but I think what you're pointing to is that um, I have begun a position of directing doctoral students in open and relational theology. Uh, an online seminary called Northwind Theological Seminary has just begun. It's a startup. And uh, I'm accepting students to study open and relational thought in relation to the kind of big questions that Chris and Aaron and I have been wrestling with this uh, last hour and a half or so, however long it's been. Um, and this is a fully online doctorate. So uh, it's a doctorate in theology and ministry is actually the uh, official title. And if you're interested in something like that, um, maybe the best way to get I could send you to the website, but I think I'll just give you my personal email. My email is tjoord at nnu.edu. And just uh, let me know you're interested in that. In terms of other things I got going on, you can find uh, that stuff on my newsletter or my website. Uh, my website is my full name or just, you know, search Google for me. Chris? Well, <laughs> I'm sure there's something though. I mean, I've got a ton of writing projects, but I don't have a job currently, um, you know, a teaching post and I'm not sure what, what that's going to look like. I'm, I'm honestly in a, a kind of vocational crisis. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I do have some books that I'm writing. Um, one that I'm, I'm pretty excited about that's unrelated to this theme or at least only tangentially related it's a Christology and the Arts book. So it's a, a kind of Christology, constructive Christology, organized around the liturgical year in relationship to film, fiction, poetry, architecture, sculpture, and so on. Um, so like basically each chapter takes a major work of art or a major artist, or at least an artist I'm majorly interested in, and, <laughs> and then works out Christological themes. So asking what does this art reveal about Christology and what does Christology reveal about the making and, and receiving of such art? Cool. And I'm about, I'm about halfway done with the book at this point. And, you know, it'll probably be next year before it comes out. 
Well, that's exciting. And we're both in that club about the job. So we're just going to start our own club together, Chris. (laughs) And hopefully this, this podcast will be coming out a couple months, probably after recording. So, you know, depending on which view of God we take, either God's going to give us a job or we got some work to do with God to get that job. Uh, Either way, we're participating and we're going to make that. (laughs) We're going to do that. Uh, Hey, Tom and Chris, it's been wonderful having you both on the podcast. Thanks so much for being with us. And uh, you're welcome back really anytime. If you're like, I got an idea, I'll say yes to it and let's do it. So thanks so much for being (laughs) with us. Tom, it's good to talk to you again, man. I'm glad to hear you're doing well. Thanks, Chris. I've enjoyed this whole thing. Thanks for putting it together, Aaron. And thanks, Chris, for all your excellent comments. Yeah, well, we'll talk soon, I'm sure.